Good morning. This morning's passage comes from Exodus 4, verses 1 through 17. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hands, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Well, if you've been following along with us in this study of the book of Exodus that we've been doing, um, then you know, hopefully by now, that the book of Exodus and the storyline of Exodus provides us really with a beautiful picture of our own story. It's not just the story, their movement from bondage to freedom is the idea, but it provides us with a picture, with an image of our own movement from bondage to freedom. It's ours in a different deliverer, in the deliverer who is Jesus. And I say that because if you just look at the big storyline of the book, what do you have? You have God who through a deliverer, in their case named Moses, does what? Delivers his people from bondage and slavery, in their case, to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And then he faithfully shepherds them through a wilderness, and then he gives to them a promised land, which as we'll hear today, is a land that's described as flowing with milk and honey. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that it has rivers of milk and honey in it. It means that it's a land of abundance. It's a land that is sweet, a land that is free, a land that is full, a land that is finally theirs. It's awesome. And it's even more awesome when you take that into your own heart and think about it in terms of the gospel. What is the story of the gospel? I mean, just in a nutshell, it is that there is a creator God and that he has in fact created you and that he has created you to live for him. And that, and if we can just all agree on this, we can move on. We haven't lived for him, at least not in the way that he deserves, have we? Can we just settle that? It's okay. Admit it. It's good. It's good because God has not abandoned you. But instead, in the true Moses, in the person of Jesus Christ, he entered into this world as one of us and as one of us. 
He lived the life that we have not and then willingly in love for us laid down his life as a sacrifice to pay the debt that we owe to God for stealing our puny little lives away from him. And in doing this, he has delivered us from what? Far greater you know, issues than Pharaoh and Egypt. Why? Because they're eternal. He delivers us from sin and from guilt and from shame and from all of that stuff. He delivers us in the end of all ends from death itself. He faithfully shepherds us by his spirit and through his word and with his people through the wilderness of this life. And I'm sorry, as good as it is at times, it is in fact a wilderness. However, how does it end? Where does it end? For believers in Jesus, for the rescued it ends in an eternal promised land, in a new heavens, and in a new earth. And you want to talk about abundance? My goodness. It is full of everything that we long to be filled with. It's devoid of everything we long to be rid of. And so as we come back to this study of the book of Exodus, realizing that it's not just their story, but it's also our story, we come today to Exodus chapter 4, at least to the first half of it. And we come specifically to the call of Moses. And because it's not just his story, but mine and yours, we come to it with an eye not just on Moses, but on ourselves. And here's what I mean by that. As we walk through this text, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself three questions. Keep them in mind. Question number one. Hey, God, what do you want me to do? Because you're going to see what he wants Moses to do. He's going to call Moses to go on his mission. And if you are a Christian, you are called to go on God's mission. I think at least that we all kind of get that. And what is that mission today? It is to take that gospel message and all of the mercies that adorn it, that make it authentic, that make it beautiful. And it is to take that into our homes and into our offices and into our school and into this city and out into the world. So the question is not, you know, do you want me to be a part of, the of that mission? Of course, the answer to that is yes. The question is, how do you want me to be a part of that mission? Hey God, what do you want me to do? Question number two, what have you put in my hand? The word hand runs all the way through this story. You see the hand of the Lord and then you see the hand of Moses again and again and again. And again, it's so much of the key to understanding this story in the life of Moses. And I think what God has placed in our hands, whatever it may be, strengths, weaknesses, failures, successes, experience, gifts, abilities, whatever, is so much of the key to understanding how we're to be involved in the mission of God. And then question number three, what's holding you back? Lord, what's holding me back? Because when we see this story, and you just heard Drew read this part of it, man, Moses has reason upon reason upon reason upon reason for not being involved in God's mission. And God, as you'll see, will overcome all of his objections until Moses finally just goes, oh, you know what? I just don't want to do this. Please go find somebody else. I think almost nowhere in the story of Moses is Mo Moses more relatable, at least to me, than right here. All of us know what that's like. We're comfortable. We're safe. We love the known. And the mission calls us out of the known. It calls us into the unknown, but it calls us into the unknown with the Lord. I want you to think for a second. Just try to imagine what Moses himself, forget about the people of Israel. We know what they would miss. What Moses himself would have missed if in the end he said, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm just kind of digging it here as a shepherd and I'm just going to stay in Midian and you need to go find somebody else to do this. So I'm not going. He would have missed the great adventure of faith that he was made for 
and that God had been cultivating and preparing for him for all of the 80 long years of his life up until this point. All we focus on when it comes to the mission of God, it seems to me, is what we're going to lose. Oh, what's this going to cost? My goodness. What are you going to gain? I think there's a great adventure for you. That's my point. So when we last saw Moses last week, Moses was an 80-year-old shepherd. He was a married father of two. He worked for his father-in-law, which my son-in-law pointed out. There's no shame in I kind of dug that. I thought that was good. Sometimes it's an amazing arrangement, and it was an amazing arrangement for Moses. He's been doing this for 40 years. And he takes the flocks and herds of his father-in-law west of the land of Midian. He goes down into the Sinai Peninsula, to Mount Sinai itself. And as we saw last week, the Lord God visibly, physically in some sense, appears to him in a burning bush and then speaks to him. And I want to rehearse at least the last part of what he says to Moses because it sets up chapter 4. God appears to Moses and he speaks out of the burning bush and he says, Moses, in Exodus 3 verse 16, I want you to go to Egypt and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, quote, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. Now, who is that? Well, physically speaking, he's the father of the whole nation of Israel. And he's also, and all these elders would have known this, the one who before the first one of them is even born, says, hey, your descendants will be enslaved to a foreign nation 400 years, and then I will deliver them. Well, guess how many years it's been? So here comes the Lord who keeps his word. Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me, Moses, saying, quote, I, God, have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I, God, promise that I, God, will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That is to say, I will bring you to the promised land, which is described now as a land flowing with milk and honey. And I love this. I find that the Lord never does this kind of thing for me. He's telling Moses in advance, hey, here's the mission, and now here's how it's going to go. That's the part I feel like he always leaves out for me. He says, and Moses, when you talk to the elders of Israel and you make that claim, they will listen to your voice. And then here's what's going to happen after that. Then after that, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Why three days? Why not four? Why not two? Why not nine? Why three? The nation of Egypt in this day was a long, narrow land. If you traveled three days outside of its capital city, it would take you outside, geographically speaking, of the jurisdiction of Egypt. And what is Egypt in the Bible? We've said it again and again and again. It's the place where the mummies come from. It's the place that has this whole theology of the dead. It's the place where they develop this science of mummification. Guys, Egypt is the land of the dead in the Bible. So on the third day, they will pass out of death and into life. You see the movement from bondage to freedom. It's a picture of resurrection. And now God tells Moses how Pharaoh will respond. 
He says, but I, God, know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by what? A mighty hand. So whose hand is that? Because God's not ambiguous about this. He says, so then I, God, will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I, God, will do in it. And then after that, Pharaoh will let you go. And not only that, but then I will give the people of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go up out of Egypt, you shall not go out of Egypt empty, but each Israelite woman, is the idea, shall ask of her Egyptian neighbor and any Israelite woman who lives as a slave in an Egyptian house, they'll ask for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Egyptians will give you so much of that stuff that you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters like play clothes. And so, God says, you shall plunder the Egyptians. And in the process, God through the Egyptians will compensate this particular generation of Israelite slaves for 400 years of slave labor. This is the 18th dynasty of Egypt. This is arguably the most powerful and prosperous pharaoh ever in the history of the Egyptian nation. This is a wealthy place. They will plunder it on their way out of town. They will not leave poor. And so, you know, you kind of imagine this, and you, like Moses, and he sees God, and, and he hears God, and God says, here's the mission, and here's exactly how it's going to go, and here's what you're going to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's how the whole thing is going to play out, and then when you come out, it's going to be amazing, because you're going to plunder the whole of the land, and I'm going to take you all the way to the land of promise, and man, it's just going to be amazing. And you kind of think, well, this is the moment, isn't it, that Moses is going to go, yes, let's do this thing. Like, come on, and he doesn't. Why? He's just like all of us. And in his case, I think you can kind of understand it. I mean, he's born a Hebrew slave. Yeah, we, we got that part of the story a few weeks ago, but, but he's adopted into the household of Pharaoh, who is enemy number one in the eyes of the Hebrews, isn't he? He's raised in the palace. He's educated by the Egyptians with his great brilliance, you can just see him climbing the corporate ladder and you can just hear all of the Hebrews hating on Moses. He's a traitor. But what about the Egyptians as he surpasses them with his genius? He's not one of them either, is he? And even when he takes a stand at the age of 40, he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew and he, he intervenes and he kills the Egyptian. And so he says, clearly, I'm on the side of these guys. Okay, the next day he sees these two Hebrew guys battling it out and he intervenes and both of them turn on him and say, who made you a prince or a ruler over us? And then Pharaoh finds out that he killed the Egyptian, knows which way he goes in terms of what side he's come down on, and puts a death warrant on his head, and Moses flees the land of Egypt. That's the last time he was there. And the only thing he's wanted for in Egypt at this point is murder. Nobody wants me, God. Good grief, they've rejected me. I, I don't have a place there. And so then Moses says in Exodus 4, verse 1, it says, Moses answered God and said, But behold, the elders of Israel, now listen to this, will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they'll look at me, this guy who's just come up out of the wilderness, and think I'm nuts. They'll say, The Lord did not appear to you. And that is a direct denial of what God told him would in fact occur. He said, Moses, when you speak to the 
you know, elders, they will listen to your voice. Moses says, no, I don't believe that. I don't see it going that way. I don't think that's what's going to happen. And this is particularly condemning when you consider that it's coming out of this mouth of the same guy who gives to us the book of Genesis in which we have this story in Genesis chapter 3 of the evil one himself who comes in the form of a talking snake in the Garden of Eden to our first parents. And he entices them to disobey God and completely subvert their mission. How? By causing them to doubt the truthfulness of God's Word. It's what He does to Moses here. It's what He does to us all of the time. He comes to us and says, oh, okay, yeah, so God, questionable existence on that, but anyway, if God exists, God has called you into His mission. Well, that sounds great until you think about it. So why don't we work it through together? Because here what I, is what I, the evil one, think. I mean, I, I'm thinking that if you serve like this, if you raise your kids like this, if you give like this, if you rearrange your career around this, in other words, if you go on this mission with God, and you live, therefore, as if another world exists that incidentally you can't see, smell, hear, taste, or touch in this world, and you only know about because God tells you about it in His Word, A, people are going to think you're nuts, and B, you may just lose out in the end. I mean, because how do you know that you can trust this God? How do you know that he can, you can trust His Word? So here's what I, the evil one, think. I, the evil one, think that you should reject God and His mission, but if you feel like you have to do something, I sure wouldn't do much. I would hedge my bets, man, because it feels like a risky bet to me. And I think that's a question that we've all got to kind of wrestle with. Is it a risky bet? Because I think the Lord's over here going, you know, by my word, I created the world. So i just throwing that out there, something to think about, you know. His word is inviolable. He's going, hey, this isn't risky at all. In fact, there's no risk involved. It's as sure as my word. But it's about that. Can we trust his word? And at this point, Moses is a pretty firm no. He sees God, he hears this, and he says, Lord, you know, listen, I, mm, man, this is, this is an impressive display. I, I'm, this is like, I don't know how you're doing this. This is, this is amazing, and I'm incredibly honored that you would seek me out here in the wilderness, and I'm flattered that you would consider me for this position. And, uh, and yeah, but I'm a, I'm a hard no on this. Like, I, I do not believe that these guys are going to listen to me. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that if I show up in town, they're going to reject me. And Pharaoh, who's the son of the previous Pharaoh, might even remember me. And if that's in fact the case, particularly if you want me to go talk to him, he could kill me and my whole family. So... Find somebody else. And then God, of course, destroys Moses for calling him a liar, because that's what Moses has done now, isn't it? And he finds a new deliverer. No, it's not what he does. And here's why, because he's awesome. That's why. He condescends to Moses, and he patiently speaks. Verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, okay, what's that in your hand? It's his shepherd's staff. You know, Moses is like, um, this? He says it's a staff. But what is a staff? I mean, organically, it's just a long dead stick. Isn't it? Nothing's growing off of this guy. The Lord says to Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses said, well, it's a staff. And God said, well, then throw it on the ground. Or let me put that differently. 
hand it over to me and do what I tell you to do with it. So he does. He throws it on the ground and it became a living serpent and apparently it became a poisonous living serpent because Moses ran from it. And I just run from all snakes. It doesn't matter. I don't check to see if they're poisonous or their size. Or... But he's a, he's a wilderness guy, so he would recognize it. And he runs away. If the Lord says to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Like, why does he even need to add that little detail? I don't know. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a long dead stick in his hand. Again, and the Lord in a sense is saying, hey, did you see that? Did you happen to notice that? Is there anything to be learned in that? Because there's all kinds of things to be learned in that, Moses. You learn something in that about you. You learn something in that about me. You learn that whatever it is in your hand, no matter what utility it has for you in this life, it is dead to anything that in the end of all ends will ever matter at all unless you submit it to me and then do what I tell you to do with it. In which case, then you'll discover that I am the God who can take that which is dead and make it come alive. And incidentally, I can take that which is alive and make it die. Even serpents. Now, why would that matter to a guy like Moses who's being sent to Egypt to talk to Pharaoh? Because the pharaohs of Egypt, as we talked about in the past, are overtly identified with the serpent. They wore the Uraeus crown with a poised, like to strike serpent on the forehead of the crown. He's going, hey, I think I got this one. He has no power over me. And so Moses, I'm going to give you the power to do this with your staff. Why? So that the Israelites may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has in fact appeared to you. And so then what is the Lord doing for Moses? Because God's word was not enough for him. He's saying, all right, I'm going to give you some signs. I'm going to, I'm going to give you some reasons to believe my word that in fact these guys are going to believe you when you show up with this otherwise crazy sounding story. And he doesn't stop there. We read that again, the Lord said to Moses, put your hand, so there it is again, inside of your cloak. And Moses put his hand inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. It was in an advanced state of the disease of leprosy, which in that day was incurable. And it was a slow grind to the grave. Very ugly disease. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. God can make the healthy sick and the sick healthy. And so then Moses, if they still will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. But God doesn't stop there either. For he then says, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile. And what is water? Water in the ancient Near East is the symbol of life. Why? Because it's mostly a desert there, guys. And so if you wanted to travel from point A to point B, it wasn't a direct line deal. It was from well to well to well to well to well to well until you got there or you would die. God says, okay, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, the very symbol of life, and pour it out on the dry ground and that water that you shall take from the Nile will become the symbol of death, for it will become blood on the dry ground. And then Moses, if you really don't think that the elders of Israel will believe you, all right, so then here's the deal. Do these three signs, which are pretty cool. 
So maybe now's the moment that Moses goes, yes, I'm ready. No, he's not ready. He's not. This Moses, I understand. Verse 10, it says, but Moses, who has obviously now gotten the point that all that God is really asking him to do is to be his mouthpiece. Go do what I tell you to do and, you know, go where I tell you to go. So he comes up with an excuse for that. He said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past, meaning leading up until this moment where I've now met you at this burning bush, or since you have spoken to your servant here at the burning bush, but instead I am slow of speech and of tongue, which if you think about it, Lord, makes me a really terrible choice for a spokesperson. I mean, who would do that? So, you know, go find somebody else. And so, you know, God destroys Moses for impugning his judgment because Moses is the guy that he's chosen, that he's been grooming all of his life. It's not what he does. And he doesn't also go, oh, you know what, Moses, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think about that. Duh. Thanks for pointing that out. He knows what he's doing. He's got it all dialed in. And he's patient. So again, he reasons with Moses. The Lord says to Moses, well, who has made man's mouth able to speak? That's the idea. And who makes him mute and thus unable to speak? Or for that matter, who makes people deaf or hearing or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go. And here's my promise to you. I, God, will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you shall speak. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, Moses, if you're wondering who gave you all of your abilities and all of your disabilities, true for us too, then don't wonder about that any longer because it's me. And if you're wondering why I've given them to you, why I've placed them in your hand, it's so that you can give them to me. You can do what I tell you to do through them or in spite of them. And particularly in the latter case, you can then come to know and experience my power. You'll realize who the real mover is, who the real actor is who the real deliverer is, and you will have the best seat in the house when it happens. And so now that God has overcome this other objection of Moses, maybe this is the moment where he goes, yeah, and it's not, right? I mean, you, you know this. This is the moment where he just abandons all pretense. Verse 13, but Moses said, oh my Lord, please just send someone else. Just, just send somebody else. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable here. I, I, I'm, I'm very safe here. This is, this is all very known to me here. I've spent 40 years building this little life out here. And I, I'm 80 years old. And I, you know, I'm like, man, come on. I just don't want to do this. And so God destroys Moses for his insolence and finds somebody else. No because he's awesome. God says, all right, so here's the deal. Your brother Aaron is on his way out here. Aaron's a great public speaker. I know I made his mouth too, so kind of know a little bit about this stuff. <clears throat> anyway, you might want to meditate on that. He's going to come out, and here's the way it's then going to work. I'm going to tell you, Moses, what's to be said. You're going to tell Aaron what's to be said, and then Aaron is going to tell the elders of Israel, and then later on Pharaoh, what needs to be said. And you, therefore, Moses, are going to 
stand in the position of God to your brother and to everyone else who interacts with you guys. It's like he promotes him. How crazy is that? But here's the deal, Moses. The conversation's over now. Take your staff and for your own good, go. And he goes. Because that's God's mission for him. But the question is, what's God's mission for me and for you? I mean, we get it generally. Okay, advance the gospel in our homes and city and community and neighborhood and school and office and in the world. We, we understand that. But in detail, what is it? Like specifically, what is it? And if you want to know the answer to that, a good place to look perhaps is in your own hand. What do I have and not have? What are my strengths and weaknesses? What are my experiences? What are my failures and what are my successes? If I'll take this and hand this to the Lord and do whatever it is that He tells me to do with it, even if it freaks me out, (laughs) then I will have the best seat in the house. I can watch God do what only He can do. And we all claim that we want to see that. I do and you do. And then when we get like right up to the precipice and it's like, okay, jump. We're like, yeah, no, I'm pretty comfortable back here actually. I'm like, I'm afraid of heights. And the Lord's like going, but hey, I got you. I have this. I'm the deliverer. And you have more faith in your disabilities than in my abilities. So then lastly, what's holding you back? That's question number three. Because here's what it's holding you back from. And it's not a what, it's a who. It's holding you back in some sense from God himself. When God comes to us and calls us into his mission, he's not coming to us, you know, like with an apology. I'm so sorry that I have to impose this upon you. And I realize how costly this is going to be. And I maybe this rearranges the furniture in your life a little bit. And, you know, and so if I could find somebody else, I would do it. But I'm kind of stuck. And so could you please maybe kind of sort of help me out like this? And I'll give you an eye. It's none of that. He's inviting us to meaning. He's inviting us to purpose. He's inviting us to significance. He's inviting us to do something that matters. He's inviting us to the great adventure that he's made us for and prepared us all our lives for. And he's inviting us to go on the great adventure with him. That's the point. So what he's offering us is himself. He's a God on a mission. And he's standing over here going, everybody says they want to know me. Guess what? I'm a God on a mission. So join me in my mission. And it is there that you'll come to know me, to experience me, to have to rely on me, and to discover that I'm reliable. And take what's in your hand, because that's what he's planning to use. So what is God's mission for you? What's in your hand? And what's holding you back? Because whatever it is, it's keeping you really, in some sense, from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous and amazing and beautiful story that we find in the book of Exodus that has made all the more marvelous and amazing and beautiful when we realize that it's our story too. We thank you for the Redeemer and the Deliverer whose name is Christ Jesus, the living Word of God. And the Word of God does not fail. By your spirit and through your word, inspire faith in you that calms our fears and that reorients our days, that they might, in the end matter, encourage us, Lord, to step out in faith in whatever way you direct. 
to offer to you whatever it is that's in our hand. It's yours anyway, even our wounds. And then, Lord, use them. Do these things in Christ's name. Amen.